If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And today, we are bringing you a conversation about student loans and what you can do about yours or your children's. And the conversation is going to be with Megan Landris. Before we do that, however, I just want to remind you that we are right around the first of the year. A lot of organizations are starting to look out beyond 2021 into 22 and 2023 because we can really start to see more clarity. So if you're interested in strategic planning at any point in 2021, go ahead and reach out to me. My schedule typically fills up about three, four months in advance. So we should definitely have a conversation now if this is something you want to be working on in 2021. And now, let me introduce our guest, Megan Landris, to you. I was so impressed when I read her bio because she nonchalantly says that she became interested in finance when she had a part-time bookkeeping job in high school. Now, I know very few high school students that are ready to manage money, but literally someone was paying her to be their bookkeeper. And that speaks volumes when you realize that she had not yet really gotten bookkeeping credentials. So Megan Landris went on from being a part-time bookkeeper and obviously went to college, got a degree, did an internship with a financial planner, but then dug down deep into student loans because she realized that that's an area where so many people need help with their financial planning. And so over the course of her career, she has so far helped over 500 people tame the student loan monster with a total of over $6 million of debt. And so I am so excited to bring her on. I also have to share with you that this is a topic that I know very little about. I am probably the last generation that went to college when it was affordable. And so my entire undergraduate and graduate education combined cost less than what a Toyota Corolla costs today. And 
that allowed me to work full time and just sort of do a pay as I go plan. And so I got out of school with $1,800 of student debt that I was thankfully able to pay off in about a year or a year and a half. That's not the case for most people today. I know tons of people, people that go to in-state that leave school with five-figure or maybe even low six-figure student loan debt. And that's an albatross that hangs around them. And that's why I think this conversation with Megan is just so important. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to nerding out on this topic with you. (laughs) Same here. And as I said, this is a topic I don't know a lot about. And so I know that I'm going to just learn a ton through our conversation. Where I wanted us to start, because the vast majority of our listeners work in the nonprofit sector, is there's actually a federal forgiveness program. And there are a lot of myths and fears about that program as well. Can we chat about the program? Oh, yeah. And you're absolutely right. There's a lot of uh, nervousness around PSLF. It's called Public Service Loan Forgiveness. It's the federal forgiveness program for federally held loans. And I think a lot of that nervousness comes around the fact that it is kind of a newer program. It was enacted in 2007. So the first time we could have seen anybody get forgiveness is 2017. So from that perspective, it's it's newer And there's some technicalities that we need to check the box for to successfully achieve it. I got to stop and ask this question. And again, I know very little about student loans. So all of our listeners may already know the answer to this question. But if someone acquired their student loans before 2007, are they still eligible for this program? They could be as long as they are the correct loan type. So they need to be direct loans. Payments on those loans will not count prior to October 1st, 2007. They're not going to count. But post that date, they will. So I know a lot of our listeners went to school before 2007. So that's really gratifying to hear. What else should people know about loan forgiveness? Well, first, it's attainable. I think there's a common misconception that you can't get PSLF forgiveness. You can, you just have to make sure you're checking the five requirements to successfully achieve that forgiveness. And so let's check those off now for our listeners, because again, uh, maybe everybody already knows about it. Maybe I'm the last person on the planet to not, but I'd be willing to bet some other people like me don't know much about it. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost is the most obvious. We have to be working in public service and paid by that entity. And so that's any government entity, nonprofit, 501c3 entity, all those qualify. Second would be we have to work full time. And so they determine that as 30 hours on average or more, unless the employer has a different definition. And so at that point, you'd need to work their full-time definition. If you had two part-time positions at two different nonprofits and the hours added up to 30 or above, that still qualifies. So I think that's something some people don't know either, which could be positive if you're kind of splitting your time between two different entities. Third is we have to have the correct type of loan. So direct loans are what qualify for forgiveness, only federal loans, not private. And then fourth requirement is we have to be on an income-driven plan for our repayment. And there are four that you could have access to. And then the last requirement is making 120 qualifying payments. And so a qualifying payment is one that's made where all four of those previous things I mentioned exist at the same time and a payment that's made on time and in full which 120 payments shakes out to be about 10 years if you're consistent with your public service work. So let's unpack some of this. 
The first point I think you said was that you've got to be working for an eligible employer like a 501c3. If your organization outsources that to a PEO, a professional employer organization that's a for-profit, are you immediately disqualified? It depends. Um, So what you have to do is complete an employer certification form. And I would suggest doing this if you're not sure they qualify or if you think they don't. Go ahead and just fill this out to find out for sure. But what they do is, you know, on this form, you put your employer's information, the EIN number for the employer itself, and then someone from HR or your direct supervisor signs off on it. If they come back and approve that form, then you're good to go for PSLF. So I think the ECF form is the most or the best way to confirm whether or not you could qualify. And would you recommend that people complete that form with their employer and send it in now and not wait? Yes. So that form, it it will always be retroactive anyways, meaning they don't continue to count payments up for you. It's always going to look back on the dates that you are certifying. So, you know, you're not missing out if you haven't submitted it yet, but it's best practice to submit it sooner rather than later. So everybody is on the same page with how many payments you have going towards that 120 threshold. And I got to ask this question for those of us that are at nonprofits that are hiring people, are we able to say to prospective employees that we are a qualifying organization for loan forgiveness? You could. And that I will say that is attractive to talent these days. Um, If they're specifically looking for employment because of their student, well, if that's a benefit they're looking for, (laughs) you know, that's something that could be really positive to them. I just wanted to make sure. And so is there anything, is there any documentation that a nonprofit needs to fill out to be able to publicly say that we are a qualifying organization for forgiveness? Not necessarily. That entity has to be filing taxes as a public service entity. So if you've lost status, then maybe that's a problem. But if you're in good standing and you've been filing taxes as public service, you should be fine. That's awesome. You also said, and again, this is where I do not know a lot about student loans, that I think it's one of four types of income-related repayment. Yeah, so there's four different income-driven plans, or IDR is kind of the blanket statement for them. They could either be based off of 10, 15, or 20% of your discretionary income. So if I was thinking about getting loan forgiveness, why would I go for a 15% IDR as opposed to a 10% IDR? Or does the government decide which one you're eligible for? So your loans and when you borrowed will decide which one you're eligible for. Anybody could have access to the 10% or one of the 10% plans. The downside to that one plan that everybody could have access to with direct loans is that it factors in spousal income if you're married. And so there's some strategy there where maybe the 15% plan is better because that allows you to exclude spousal income while it's still higher. It might be lower when we're factoring in spouse, spousal income on the other. So gosh, this doesn't sound very romantic, but do people ever consider student loans when they're deciding whether or not they're going to get married? They do. I, I would say that is a common conversation that's had now before engagement or during engagement um, on how they're going to impact each other. So when someone's on an income-driven plan, it's not so much an issue when both 
spouses have student loans and they're both on an income-driven plan because they'll have a household payment and then it's the payment itself is split proportionately between each spouse's balance. It's, it's more of a conversation or I think more of the anxiety comes around when one spouse or potential spouse has debt and the other doesn't because you do start have to, having to have those conversations about, you know, are you going to help me with my payments or are we going to look at maybe filing separately or what, what's our strategy? So it's not something to be scared about. I tell people that all the time. It's just something we need to know about and have a plan for so we can pivot when that time comes. I know a lot of people do premarital counseling, like relationship counseling. And actually, my husband and I did that. And oh my gosh, I could not recommend it enough. But it sounds like maybe people should be doing premarital financial counseling as well. Oh my gosh, 100%. I am totally down for that. <laughs> I think that should be required too. <laughs> do, do you do much of that as a financial counselor? I think that's a big driving factor to what makes people schedule a call with someone like me, or at least have the conversation. Like marriage is a big one. Having kids is another big one or like a big life event. So really interestingly, COVID has been a big one because people have been able to slow down, think about their situation and figure out, should I be taking a closer look at this? So I think a lot of different life events could drive people to reach out or to, to take a closer look. That's really awesome. And speaking of COVID, I understand there's also a CARES Act student loan relief program. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So the CARES Act was implemented on March 27th. Um, It was a big stimulus package to help America with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. There was a lot of student loan relief included in that package. And so currently what we're still in is that interest is frozen or is at 0% for all federally held student loans and payments are paused. Uh, It was originally until uh, September 30th, but it has been extended to December 31st. And so payments for federal loans are not going to be required until 2021. The really good thing about that as it relates to people in in the nonprofit space or public service space is that these months where we're not required to have payments still count towards forgiveness timelines. So even without making a monthly payment right now, these months still count towards that 120 payment threshold. So as long as you're still working for that nonprofit employer, even if you're not making payments, it counts. Correct. Yeah. So you still have to be working full time uh, for that public service entity. But yeah, uh, these months count. That is an amazing deal because that's money in your pocket. And you still get, it sounds like everything forgiven at the end of your 120 months of payments. Yes. So there is literally no incentive for someone to be paying right now who's working towards forgiveness. Um, It doesn't speed up your timeline. The payment or the month already counts. So that money is better put towards literally anything else. (laughs) So if we have listeners who are currently paying their student loans and want to take advantage of this, how do they do that? Yeah, so everybody's auto drafts were shut off. So you were actually forced into forbearance back in March. So you actually don't have to be making payments and you can't be auto debited right now. So if you have been making payments intentionally, which people may have been, you can request a refund as far back as March 13th. And so I talked to someone recently where they had been making payments since March and her payments are not small. And so I told her she could go and ask for a refund because the months still counted. And she, you know, (laughs) she was really excited about that. (laughs) 
And and so I I just got to ask like roughly how much was her total refund? So she was working in a nonprofit hospital as a physician. So hers was going to be about 10,000 that she was getting back. <laughs> oh wow. Okay, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to say that makes for a much, much better end yeah. of year for her and her family. Wow. Yep. So she she got that all back. And then um, I think she actually did drop a lump sum on it too. Because I think there is there is that common misconception that if you pay extra on debt in general, then that's a good thing. But it's not a good thing if we're pursuing forgiveness because it, it doesn't speed our timeline up. It actually puts us into what's called paid ahead status. And if we don't have a required bill the next month, then that month is not going to count. So we actually kind of shoot ourselves in the foot doing that. But yeah, she was able to get all that back and her status is corrected. (laughs) I think you had mentioned that the CARES Act, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think you'd said the CARES Act is only for federally held student loans. Correct. This actually kind of shined a light on different types of federal loans you could have, which originally didn't matter so much unless you were pursuing PSLF, but folks could have what's called FFEL loans or Family Federal Education Loans. Those have never qualified for PSLF. So people who are pursuing PSLF um, either have maybe consolidated those or converted them into the correct type of loan, um, or they were treating those like a regular debt and just paying those off. But those loans were issued prior to 2010. And they don't issue them now, but they were kind of randomly assigned before 2010. And they could have been either held commercially or federally. And so the federally held FFEL loans have payments shut off, but the commercially held loans don't. They're kind of treated as private loans, even though they're still under the federal loan umbrella. So that kind of shined that light on the difference between a federally held federal loan and a commercially held federal loan, which at one point didn't really matter. (laughs) Is it possible to convert a commercially held loan into a federally held loan again or no? It is. Yep. So you can do a process called consolidation, which I think sometimes gets confused with refinance. So those words are not the same thing, but consolidation means you just combine or convert that loan code into a direct consolidation loan which qualifies for forgiveness and it changes it from commercially held to federally held. I'm sure we probably have a lot of listeners that have some commercially held loans because they'd refinanced. And if they're able to convert it into a federally held loan, is there any reason why they wouldn't pursue that? Yeah, that's a good question. So if they're pursuing forgiveness, there's no reason why you shouldn't because those loans, those payments you've been making on the FFEL as of right now have not been counting towards the 120 payment threshold. Really? So so if someone were to convert it now, essentially the first payment on the federally held loan would be payment number one and they'd have 119 more payments on top of that. Correct. Yes. And another thing, so to your point of, you know, what what should you know before you consolidate, you don't have to consolidate all of your loans. So I'd find this a lot where some people have like a couple FFEL loans and their rest are direct and they have some qualifying payments on those direct loans. You do not have to consolidate them all. You can simply just consolidate the two or three FFEL loans and that preserves your payment history on the ones that were in good standing. So... I think that's a good move. And so then it also though sounds like if you've got the commercially held loan and you have less than 10 years of payments left, it doesn't make sense. You should just go ahead and repay 
on your on schedule for the commercially held loan? Or is there still a reason why they would consolidate and move over? It depends. I think it depends on um, a lot of factors. <laughs> I, I think maybe it, there is a point though where you should maybe treat it like a debt going forward because if the balance is low enough to where if you went another 10 years, you just pay it off. Um, and so there might be a more efficient way to pay it off versus an income-driven plan at that point. But if someone's balance is large enough or they have to essentially start from payment zero, it could still make sense to pursue that. I know it's unfortunate if you thought your payments had been counting for years and they, they haven't, but there's still a plan to get it on the right track going forward. And so I would imagine that if folks and I and I would imagine most people are somewhat confused by all the different plans and all the different options. So I would imagine probably the best thing to do would be for people to reach out to someone like you. I, yeah, well, I'd say yes, the system is so unfortunately complicated. So I will say you do have resources through studentaid.gov. There's what's called a PSLF help tool which will help you start to identify if you have the wrong loan type, if your loan or if your um, employer looks to, to qualify. So that could be a good first step, but navigating the plan itself, like which repayment plan you should jump on or what's most strategic or how you should be filing taxes wise, if you're married, you know, that's where a, a planner can come in. And that's not something your servicer or the, the student aid is going to help you with. And so, first of all, listeners, we're going to link to studentaid.gov in our show notes. So, you'll be able to get that when you go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. But for folks that are interested in maybe working with a planner to help them navigate really what sounds like could be a fairly complicated process, like how does that work? Do they pay the planner a set fee? Does the planner get a commission when things are consolidated? How does that typically work? No. So in the student loan planning world, I think it's really straightforward, which I love. In the rest of the financial world, if you're hiring someone to help you with investments, they're going to charge a fee off of the investments potentially or get a commission off of whatever product they're helping you with. Student loans, there's nothing really like that. I mean, you hire me for the advice. A student loan planner, we charge a flat fee depending on your debt level. That comes with, you know, the consultation and six months of email correspondence to make sure the plan is up and off the ground. And I think generally, you know, that could be what you expect running into any, you know, certified student loan professional. Roughly, like what should people generally be budgeting if they're interested in hiring a student loan professional? Yeah, so our pricing ranges from three ninety five to five ninety five, and that is based on debt level. So if you have under two hundred thousand, you'd be at the three ninety five level. If you have over four hundred thousand, you'll be at the five ninety five level. So it is by debt load, and that probably gave somebody a heart attack listening to this, thinking four hundred and above. What? <laughs> but that is not abnormal now. <laughs> so just so I understand, $395 to $595 mm -hmm. is the range. I just have to reflect as someone who does have a, a paid financial planner, so she doesn't get a commission from us. We just pay a flat amount every year. That's a bargain. Mm -hmm. That's a real bargain. Now, do you do other financial planning when you're working with them around student loans? Or how do you help individuals understand how the student loan fits into their long-term financial and retirement planning? Yeah, that's a great question. So in our student loan planning consults, we do discuss how, you know, saving for retirement impacts the plan. We help navigate, you know, because I think a, a hard part of like student loans in general is that we've been taught that debt is bad. 
and we need to pay it off or we need to focus on that alone until it's gone, which with forgiveness, that's not the right approach. You know, our goal is to pay as little as possible to maximize how much we can get forgiven. So we talk a lot about how to reduce AGI, to reduce that payment. So by contributing to pre-tax vehicles like retirement or HSA, those are some ways. And then we talk a little bit about, we're not CPAs, but we talk about tax filing strategy on, you know, for filing separately. What could you maybe ballpark expect? What tax discount would you be missing out on maybe by filing separate? And is it worth it to drop the payment down to just your own income? So we talk through those things. Um, but in addition to that, so I have my own financial coaching practice where I do help people with just organizing the rest of their financial life. And that's a little more in depth where we're walking through cash flow, other debt, emergency savings, income protection, protection in general of your financial plan, and then saving, you know, putting money towards your future. And so I think you get a taste of it in a student loan planning consult because student loans touch so many pieces of your financial plan. But if you're working with a coach or a financial planner, you know, they're going to dive in a little deeper on on the rest of your finances as well. Very cool. And, and I've said something I not thought about, but that would make sense if the income-driven repayment is based on your adjusted gross income. Suddenly, this really incentivizes people to save as much as possible for retirement because it, lo- it lowers their monthly student loan payment. I had not thought about that, but what a great incentive. Yeah. And that's what I say too. I'm like, if you wanted another incentive other than great financial independence. (laughs) Here's another one. It'll reduce your student loan payment. (laughs) And what a great favor you're doing for your future self. Not only are you finding ways to help your future self off in eight or 10 years when it gets forgiven, but also to help your future self out a good little bit in 20, 30, or 40 years when you retire. I just love that. That's awesome. They're cohesive and they work together to do different things, but overall for your your benefit. (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. Well, Megan, I am so grateful that you came on again. I just have to say, I know nothing about student loans, and you have actually taught me a ton, and I hope that our listeners have gotten as much out of it as well. And I also hope our listeners that do have student debt have realized that there might be some ways for them to manage that student debt so that maybe they get forgiveness, or maybe they just find a way that they end up paying significantly less back on their student loans. So I can't let you go without asking you the off the map question. I think I got a good one for you because I understand that you used to do mud runs, things like Spartan Race and Tough Mudder, et cetera, and suddenly you just stopped. Yep, that's true. <laughs> oh man, I, I literally did forget that I put this on my one of the topics that you couldn't Google about me, but yeah, so I used to do Tough Mudder, Savage Race. There's a lot of them that come through Georgia uh, where I live. And I always thought they were really fun. But my first, the first firm I worked at um, as a financial planning firm, and we specifically worked with federal employees and more specifically with people at the CDC because Atlanta is a big hub for CDC employees and they're federal. Uh, most, most there are federal employees. And so we had a client who was in um, some kind of infectious disease section of the CDC. And we were talking about like what I was doing that weekend. And I think I had like a savage race or something. And he was like, oh, you might really want to be careful at those. And I was like, 
why? I was thinking he was saying like you could get hurt or slip or something. And he was like, no, we, we traced um, a couple you know, cases back to mud runs where someone must have cut their leg and people were rolling around in the mud and they all got this, uh, this illness. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is terrifying. <laughs> so I, uh, I actually have not since done one. I think kind of because of that conversation, but also just kind of uh, in general, I think that overall that freaked me out. I was thinking about all the other things that could be in that gross mud that I'm rolling around in. So <laughs> so it's interesting because we both live in the Atlanta area and I have a friend who works for the CDC in their foodborne illnesses division. And this is about four or five years ago. I was talking to her about going to a restaurant and she said to me, oh, I almost never eat out. Let me tell you about some of the things that we have traced back to restaurants. And she got to like point number two and I just had to say, Mary, stop, because I'm not going to stop eating at restaurants and I don't want to be skeeved out. So, yeah. <laughs> I think there's some, uh, there's some bliss and ignorance. Is that what it is? Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, but it's funny because I've done some of those mud races and I really never thought about that as one of the possible downsides. But now that you said it, I could totally see it. Yeah, I, I get how it could happen. Um, so if you're doing those still, be careful. Make sure you don't have any open wounds. <laughs> well, and I would also say, like, that's one more reason to wear spats and, like, a rash guard that goes all the way to your wrist is you're probably just less likely to get a scratch or cut yourself. Yes, exactly. And don't open your eyes under the muddy water. <laughs> Agreed. Oh, my gosh. Totally agree with that. That is disgusting. Or open your mouth. Uh, <laughs> well, Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful you came on. I want to make sure that our listeners know how to get a hold of you and the organizations you work with. So the first is studentloanplanner.com. And the second URL, listeners, I want you to be aware of is Megan's own financial consulting practice, which is financialcoachmegan.com. If you are interested in figuring out how to better deal with your student debt, either of those two are great resources but make sure you reach out to Megan. She can help you figure it out. And if you're interested in also figuring out how your student debt factors into a fuller lifetime financial plan, Megan's also a great person to talk to. Now, at both of those websites, check out their blogs. I have read a number of articles on both blogs. They're incredible. And at the student loanplanner.com. You can also access their podcast. And I know you're a podcast listener, so make sure you go up there as well. Megan, thank you again for joining us today. Oh, thank you. This was a good time. Hopefully we gave some listeners some good info and didn't give too many too many heart attacks or anything. <laughs> but uh, there is a plan. You know, uh, don't be scared of your student loans. Listeners, if you were just logging into that Tough mutter race that you've already paid for to see what the refund policy is, hey, no worries. Keep on trying to figure out that refund policy because A, you can put the refund toward your student loans, but B, you can get all of the URLs we mentioned at the, our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And don't forget, as we look into 2021, if you are interested in strategic planning for your organization, reach out to me. You can find me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com as well. Finally, listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, I would suggest that you 
check out episode number 86, which is offering employee benefits your team will love. Because if we're talking about student loans, employee benefits are something important to be talking about as well. Do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits podcast on your streamer of choice. And listeners, I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This episode is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If you find yourself in need of such counsel, please reach out to a licensed, competent professional and get the advice you need.